Hello and welcome to episode number 30 of Earth Repair Radio. When I go out to the garden, there's always good news. You know, maybe the good news is that I have eggs in my chicken coop or that um, I think the bleeding heart opened today, you know, or that the tulips are glistening in the sun or that that sweet song sparrow is sitting on the trellis singing her song. We, we talk about in permaculture the principle of stress and harmony. We all know what that's like to be stressed, and we all know how we feel like we're just able to thrive when we our life is in harmony. And so if we can create the most harmonious relationship for our plants, then they can have the easiest time to produce the sweetest, juiciest, largest tomato that we want to be harvesting in August. I'm your host, Andrew Millison, and today's guest is one of my favorites, my collaborative partner of nearly 10 years, Marisha Auerbach. Marisha is one of the most knowledgeable people I know about permaculture food forests. She's a plant encyclopedia, homesteading skills wizard, and has grown all of her own produce for decades on large farms and small urban lots. She spent the last year creating a new permaculture food forest online course, which is now open for enrollment and presents her grounded wisdom and experience in an easily digestible fashion. Today, we're going to talk about how to build food security by turning your urban lot into a highly productive permaculture system. So use your time at home during the COVID-19 pandemic and get your garden raging. And please enjoy this interview with Marisha Auerbach. So Marisha, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. Good to be here. Yeah, this beautiful sunny day in Oregon where... Everything is peaceful and quiet where I live. Not a lot of cars on the road. All the shops are closed. All the schools are closed. The university's closed. It's a really, really interesting time to uh, be observant and alive. And um, it's also a really interesting time because I notice it like all of my neighbors, everybody's just out in their gardens and their yards. You know, the weather's nice. It's springtime in Oregon. I imagine that... Um, there's a lot of the same going on in Portland. Yeah. Yeah. Seeing a little bit more people out there in their yards and more attention towards local food production, um, farmers markets and, um, the importance of strengthening that system here in the city. Uh, what right now we're going to have this week, 10 days of sunny weather, which is kind of uncharacteristic for April to have such long, warm, sunny weather, but the pears are blooming and the apples are blooming and it's a great time for pollination. Yeah. So, um, there's a lot of people that are like us that are basically stuck at home right now. And, uh, you in particular live in a city. You do not have a a large lot. You have a relatively small place. And I've been to your place a lot of times and seen it over the years and it is absolutely just bursting with food. So I was wondering if you could give a little bit of an introduction to how big your place is, how long you've been there, and then what what are you eating out of your urban food forest right now? Yeah, so my lot is 6,600 square feet. We actually put a second-story garden on, so we have a rooftop garden. It's the largest residential green roof, we think, in Portland, so that's 1,400 square feet. So that's the footprint of my home. I've been living here for about 10 years. 
I moved here after living in Southwest Washington, and I had developed a presentation that was called How to Grow All Your Own Produce in Two and a Half Years. I took that around the Pacific Northwest for maybe about eight years or so, um, sharing about how I had been practicing only eating the vegetables and fruit that I grew off a urban lot in Olympia, Washington. And that was pretty successful, and people thought it was really cool, but they would say, you know, you were on one acre in Olympia, Washington. I live in the city. How am I, how is this relevant for me? So when the time came for me to move to Portland 10 years ago, I decided that I wanted to move to the city so I could trick out an urban lot, permaculture style, and show people that we can produce enough food for a household um, on a city lot. I mean, it was the original design for cities where people got a 5,000 square foot plot to live on for an urban lot was the, the that amount of land was chosen because that was the amount of land that was needed to produce food for a family of four. So we are so far down the road now that no one's really, that not many people are using their, the potential of their space. So, um, so we've been here for 10 years. Um, the first year we really focused on building the soil. We wanted to have the right kind of materials in the beginning stages of our design so that we could be designing for long-term um, water storage in the soil and nutrient storage. Yeah, now I've got to say I'm really, really jealous of your site because it seems like you really, really got rid of the grass those grasses that are competing with all of the food plants we want. And in my yard that I didn't really go through the, the proper technique in the very beginning, I still, to this 10 years later myself, am always battling grasses. So why don't you talk a little bit about the establishment phase? Because we've got a lot of people out there who are right now just itching to establish. Maybe it's their first garden or maybe it's the first garden at the place they're at. How did you guys, how did you guys do such a good job of getting your garden in the beginning and eliminating some of those really competitive weeds? Well, we got to go back a minute here to say that. So I made that presentation when I was on an acre in South in Southwest Olympia, Washington. I also have been very involved with the wild time farm, which is a 150 acre farm in Southwest Washington. So when I was the primary person maintaining the landscape of this farm, because it was such a big landscape, I had to really be keen on how to make my work really matter. So my sheet mulching, I'm, I'm kind of picky about sheet mulching. I think it's really important to make sure that when you throw down cardboard to cover up your grass so that um, the grass is not exposed to light, um, I put down three layers. I want to make sure that all of my work is really going to happen. It's really going to do um, what it's intended to do. And if you, as you can imagine, you know, if you're maintaining a farm, I guess we could say maybe like three acres, five acres was under cultivation, and you're the only person doing that, then every single grass that comes up in your sheet mulch is going to be a waste of time for you to go back and weed it out. So I learned to be really thorough by managing the landscape at the farm. So now let's go back to how I got my place established. Um, first, we wanted to find the least expensive and the cleanest um, raw materials that we could use to establish our landscape. 
Um, we found, we got our cardboard for our sheet mulch from a brewery. Um, it was really nice how it didn't have any flaps in it. It was really large pieces. And um, so we laid that down on top of the on top of the grass to kill it. We overlapped it, and it rained right after we laid it out so we didn't have to water it in too much. We found a dump truck load, 10 yards, of composted organic cow manure, and we got that delivered. And then we also found one ton of straw bales that were aged. They were over a year old, so the farmer really wanted to get rid of them. And um, we, I had called around for a bit trying to make sure that I was finding straw bales that didn't have a lot of contaminants in them. Um, here in Oregon, we need to be cautious about a broadleaf herbicide that's called clopyrrolid, which will cause our plants to lose apical dominance and um, get contorted. Um, it's a broadleaf herbicide. It's used on grain crops, and so it's very common to find in straw. And most people I contacted for straw just laughed at me, but um, this farmer was like, why would you use any chemicals to grow straw. So I said, okay, you're the guy. And I think I got a ton of straw bales delivered for 80 bucks. Wow. So we basically did the whole landscape using cardboard, um, these bales of straw. Some we broke apart, some we left as intact bales, and um, 10 yards of composted organic cow manure. Okay, so now let's talk about the person who right now, again, they're stuck at home, and they want to have a garden here. They want to do it the right way. It's not necessarily that easy to just procure these large materials. There's not all the same amount of trucking going on right now. Uh, what can someone do uh, a little closer to home with the materials that might be available on hand? Well, you know, first you've got to get rid of that grass. And I would say going back to how thorough I like to be, make sure you take out all of the roots. Um, if you have chickens, you can put, you can concentrate your chickens on a lawn and they'll scratch up the grass. And, you know, if you have chickens, then you're getting a couple eggs a day. I have two chickens and two ducks and I'm getting three eggs a day and I'm glad to not go to the store right now. They're um, probably about two years old, which is why I'm not getting four eggs a day. So for the average person, um, you would probably, you'd want to start by digging up the grass and covering it with some sort of organic material um, to enrich your soil. So depending on what you have access to, um, that would be compost. Maybe you can get bagged compost. I prefer to get bulk materials because you probably need more than you can imagine. Um, and then starting a compost pile so that you're able to have that fertility for your garden in a couple months. Um, if you don't want to start a compost pile, starting a worm bin is one of the fastest ways to be able to turn food scraps into fertility. Now, what about the person who really the thought of going and taking a Maddox and shovel and digging up their whole lawn seems like a little more than they would like to do right now, or they can do that in portion, but they have a larger area. What do you think about um, covering an area of lawn with, say, layers of tarps that someone might have, you know, sitting in their shed or garage? You know, have you have you right. used that tactic before? Yeah, we've used black plastic at Wild Time Farm. Um, we used it um, particularly on reed canary grass, which is a particularly aggressive species. We left the black plastic down for three years. Um, I would say in an urban lot setting, you know, you could probably put a tarp down for maybe like, I mean, if you wanted to get rid of the grass altogether without having to do any digging, 
then you'd probably want to leave it down for a couple months. But if you left it down for just a month um, in with days like today when it's warm out and the grass wants to grow, those little grass leaves are going to come up and they're not going to be able to photosynthesize and they're going to slowly lose their energy on being able to, you know, grow and be able to be existing in that space. And so as that grass loses its energy, then you need to be ready to come in with what you want to grow. So basically, someone could be looking right now, it's, uh, we're talking on April 13th, they're looking at planting their summer garden by the beginning of June. They could maybe just find some tarps in their garage, throw some down on their grass, and by the time they're ready to plant uh, their robust summer garden, they could have their grass mostly eliminated. Yeah, I mean, but you still need to think about, like, where's the fertility going to come from? And one thing I'm thinking about right now at this opportune time for encouraging people to have a garden, you know, here we are in the beginning of the spring. And what if everyone who decides they want to have a garden is wildly successful? Like, what would that do for increasing the amount of gardeners that enjoy producing their own vegetables you know, in the long term, you know, it feels like we're in this interesting time where it's the dynamic of capitalism versus community is a duality that we're facing due to this crisis. And there's a lot of people out there that are selling um, vegetable starts that shouldn't go in the ground right now. I mean, here in Portland, we were at like a 37 degree low this weekend and tomatoes shouldn't go out until it reaches 50 degrees nighttime temperature. So here we've got some people that are new to gardening. They see these beautiful tomato plants on a 68 degree day and they think they want to put them in. So your garden really needs to have um, appropriate timing as well as good fertility for your plants to be able to grow with ease. You know, we all know what that's like. We, we talk about in permaculture the principle of stress and harmony. We all know what that's like to be stressed, and we all know how we feel like we're just able to thrive when we our life is in harmony. And so if we can create the most harmonious relationship for our plants, then they can have the easiest time to produce the sweetest, juiciest, largest tomato that we want to be harvesting in August. So it's really worth taking the time, no matter what you're growing, if you're going to grow annual vegetables or if you're going to grow fruit trees, it's worth taking the time to be able to amend the soil on the front end so that your plants have the nutrition they need in those early stages. You know, just like with a human baby, you want to have like good food, good nutrition, a secure life in the beginning, and it really pays off as things mature. Great. Okay, so I, I kind of tangented you into what someone else could do right now if they were just looking to start their garden. But but you were telling the story of um of how you really established your urban food forest. So you said you guys did a really thorough job with getting three layers of cardboard. You brought in cow manure. You brought in all of this, um, you know, herbicide free straw, and and then what? Well, we also had six chickens at the time, so um, we don't anymore. It's uh, You're not supposed to have six chickens in a city lot, but, you know, our neighbors loved our chickens. So we had some chickens clearing off the grass, and I'm an avid seed collector, so I also had a lot of seed that I had stored over time. And when we first got the garden established after we had that um, clean compost on the soil, you know, I went out and I just scattered seed. Um, so I had a lot of lettuce seed and kale seed and all these um, greens coming up. And um, 
it's hard to grow things in straw bales. So we had um, some places with compost layered in with the straw, and that was where things grew the best. Straw bales are carbon rich, and so they're a really great long-term water storage um, strategy for being able to hold water long into the drought of the growing season. So once we had all these greens growing in the first year, we ended up uh, getting rabbits because we had more greens than we could eat. Rabbits are the perfect urban livestock because you don't have to compost their poop. You can use it direct on the garden. So once we had um, too much kale for us to eat, then we were able to feed the rabbits, and then we had the yield of manure. We are turning the kale into the yield of manure from the rabbits so that we could have our own soil fertility on site. We also do a lot of composting, but in the beginning, you know, scattering seed and having an eye on how we were going to continue to have a fertile area for our continued growth was important. Yeah, I mean, so I've been to your yard and um, it's really, it's it's a food forest. I mean, you've got, you have areas where you have annual garden at this point, but now it's like you have this multi-layered orchard with all of these perennial understory plants. So it sounds like in the beginning, you really were doing annuals. And, the, and then at some point you had some kind of ecological succession going on here? Mm, somewhat, somewhat. Um, in the beginning, we did our sector analysis and our microclimate analysis and thought about how we were going to move through our space. I knew that I really wanted a nice sunny spot to sit with my morning cup of tea. I knew that I didn't want my annual vegetables in the front yard because sometimes when annuals go to seed, it looks really messy. I wanted our yard to be attractive for the neighborhood. So we ended up with this um, design response that has uh, along the my house is orientated to the west. So my front yard is in the, is um, orientated to the west. And the backyard gets lots of southern exposure, but it's on the east side of our house. So in the backyard, we made a sun trap. So we had trees planted every 17 feet um, along the lot line um, on the east side and on the north side. And so that's considered our food forest, our berry zone. The shade from those trees provides um, shade for the rabbits. And the chickens rotate through that area um, in the wintertime to help with fruit cleanup and to help with pest management. So then we have on the south side of the backyard is that we have cross fencing that's 12 feet from the lot line that separates out our zone two food forest area from our central core, which is our zone one annual vegetable area. On the south side, we have a zone two annual vegetable area, which we call the field crop zone. And so that's where we grow things like our, our uh, corn. For, we grow corn for making cornmeal and polenta, um, parsnips, potatoes, squash, quinoa, like all the field crops, things that don't need tending as often, but that we bring in all at once for harvest. Um, and we store them for the winter for our winter food. That's on the south side. And that's where my chickens are right now, preparing the area for planting. Um, in the summertime, the chickens move into the front yard. And our front yard is a perennial um, food forest woodland, we consider it. And so it's got lots of fruit trees. It's got um, different layers of the food forest. So we've got our shrubs are there, like elderberry and currant and gooseberry. 
Um, fruit trees in the front yard include um, cherry and persimmon. We've got um, a kiwi vine that's growing up a large trellis. And in the front yard, with western exposure, we still get a lot of south south sunlight. And we have a large sweet gum tree that provides a lot of shade in the center of the yard. Um, that area has been designed so that I don't need to manage it too much, but that there's always plenty of food for me to remind the mailman that he hasn't eaten his share of strawberries. Hmm. Yeah. So, wow. I mean, that's, it sounds like you're describing this huge, complex landscape, but, you know, to remember, you're talking about a 6,000 square foot residential lot in urban Portland, right? Yeah. So you've got, you've got these different areas. You have some areas, it sounds like you're keeping it in the sort of a field type of ecosystem. You're letting a lot of sunlight, you're not letting uh, trees grow. Then you have other areas that you're really taking it into, um, more of like a forest, a food forest type. Um, so what what are you eating now? You know, here we are in mid-April. What are you eating now from your your grounds? Well, one of my favorite things that I grow in my yard is the parsnip. Um, I, had, I probably planted parsnips in the first year that I moved here, and I've never planted them since. I let them go to seed. Um, when they flower, they're very attractive for beneficial insects. The root um, opens up the soil and then they drop their seed for the ones I don't harvest. Um, of course, we harvest parsnips to eat um, before they bloom. They need to be harvested in this um, by the springtime. And at this time of year, where the parsnips that are still in the ground after I've eaten as many parsnips as I possibly could over the last winter, um, I'm trying to pull up parsnips before they bloom so that I don't have too many going to seed, but that I have strategic parsnips throughout the yard so that I always have parsnips that are working on opening up the soil, attracting beneficial insects, and building biomass for our compost piles. So we are eating a lot of parsnips. I think I might make like a parsnip cake, kind of like a carrot cake later today. Um, we're still eating potatoes, and I'll be planting potatoes soon. We have um, just two squashes left right now. Um, in the... I have lots of berries stored in the freezer. Um, I've been really enjoying my um, homemade vinegars from um, my apple cider vinegar, and I also make pear cider vinegar. It's a really good tonic um, for the springtime. The nettles are up. I've been enjoying those. I just started eating lovage um, and sorrel. Those are some new things in our diet now. Um, other fresh things. We have new green onions. We have um, chives, garlic chives. The hablitzia, um, hablitzia traminoides is starting to come up. Um, I've got, oh, I've got tons of broccoli. I'm really Wait, enjoying What's the, the common name of hablitzia? What's that? Caucasian spinach. It's hmm. a perennial spinach from the Caucasus. Hmm. Yeah, so some of the perennial vegetables are really shining right now. Uh, let's see, what else are we eating? The broccoli's been amazing. Lots of kale and little broccolinis, chard, tons of salad greens. I really enjoyed the chicory and radicchio in salad over Passover, true bitter greens coming from the garden. The parsley is just brilliant right now. Yeah. Okay. So somebody is like, man, I got to get food in the ground. I've got this lawn. Okay. I want to get started with annuals, but I also want to build my long-term resilience, right? So what's, What's somebody going to be looking at? What, what's the mind frame that they should have for planting when they're looking at both 
uh, food that's going to be ready in a short duration and also planning for this long-term type of system that you've developed in, in your property? So that's good that you should ask. I teach a once a month I teach a once a month workshop series on what to do now in the garden. I find that um, even before this epidemic that people are interested in gardening, but because there's so many things that are being sold that might not be sold at the appropriate time, um, people have lost the information uh, of the different thresholds and things to consider to be able to grow your own food. So um, I have a lot of materials and people listening to this can find some handouts on the um, show notes. But the first thing to think about would be, you know, what do you like to eat? You know, there's a lot of people that start gardening and they plant things because they think they're cool, but they end up not eating them. You know, if you're trying to break the cycle of going to the supermarket for your food, you got to make sure that you're planting things that are most important to you. So the things right now that are most nutritious to grow would be your quick greens. Greens go bad quickest. Um, They're expensive to buy at the store. You often don't need as many as you purchase at the store, and they might go bad quickly. So it's good to have greens prioritized in your in your living environment. And so some good ones to consider as we go into the summertime between now and moving towards more heat rather than moving away from the heat as we do in the fall. Uh, Right now, I'd be prioritizing chard and arugula and um, the mizunas, um, the choys, uh, all the different choys, Asian greens, um, pak choy, my favorite ones are prize choy, china choy, and tat soy. Some of those will produce leaves in 30 days that you can eat. So those are going to be the quickest things to produce. Um, here in Oregon, it's really tricky to grow spinach and not have it go to bolt right away. But if you're in a colder climate, that might be easier for you. Or you might be coming out of your cold and still being able to do that. It's too late to do that here in Oregon. But I prefer to grow the mustard greens and the arugula instead because you can do all the same stuff as you can do with spinach. So that's the first stuff to prioritize and being able to build soil so that you have um, nutrition for your future foods would be something I'd prioritize right away, whether you start with a worm bin or you start with a compost system or you're able to get rabbits um, so that as you're ready So you plant those greens first. Maybe you plant some culinary herbs too because they add so much to your diet. And then, you know, when you're going to plant your warm season vegetables, which tend to be planted mid-May or maybe the beginning of June, you might already have some compost that you can contribute to be able to increase the health of those plants. So warm season crops, I mean tomatoes, peppers, zucchini, cucumbers, and uh, winter squash and melons. And a lot of the bulk of our foods here in the temperate climate come from the things that we grow in the summer. It's said that while you can grow food year-round in the tropics, here in the temperate climate, we can grow more food throughout the more food in a year because of the more the intensity of the sunlight in the summertime. Yeah, because of the um, less intense sunlight. But what we need to do is be strategic in how we spread that out throughout the year and how we put it up um, for our winter storage. Because we don't have, in many places, we don't have the benefit of being able to grow year-round. And here in Oregon, we do, but we need to be specifically strategic about what those things are. And make sure that they go in when they get, when that the leaves can capture enough sunlight 
um, in the late summer so that they can get to the size that we need to be able to have a nourishing crop. Now, you've mentioned a lot of uncommon varieties uh, and species of greens and such that many people maybe haven't heard of. Where would somebody get, I mean, you can still order seeds right now. Where would somebody get seeds? Uh, let's say, you know, here we are in the Pacific Northwest. Where would somebody who lives around around the Pacific Northwest get seeds and maybe some other places as well? And it is some seed companies had to take a break and shut down for a week or two because they were so overwhelmed with seed orders. So first, um, an overarching guideline is wherever you are, I would recommend that you purchase seed from a local seed supplier that has signed the safe seed pledge, which means that they commit to not offering genetically modified seeds. Now, if you don't get genetically modified seeds um, and you get open pollinated varieties, then you can also learn how to save your own seeds by the end of the summer. So you won't have to buy some of your seeds next year. So those are some things to consider. And here in the Pacific Northwest, here in the Pacific Northwest, my favorite seed companies are Adaptive Seeds, Siskiyou Seeds, Uprising Seeds, Nichols Garden Nursery, Wild Garden Seed, and Peace Seedlings. If you are in the Southwest, I would recommend going to Native Seed Search. And if you're on the East Coast, High Mowing Seeds um, provides high-quality seeds. But if I didn't mention someone in your area, I think the most important thing is to make sure that you're getting those open-pollinated seeds, which means that your seeds are pollinated by an insect, the wind, or other natural means so that you're able to reproduce that seed for future generations. Nice. Okay, so someone's got getting their annual greens in. They're getting all set for their summer annual garden and then they're like, okay, now I, I also want to build the food forest, right? How, how are they constructing their food forest? What are they putting in first, right? Um, what are some of the real winners that they might choose? Or what are some of the big winners in your food forest, perennial-wise? Perennial well, first, let's start with the one thing that everyone can do when they're done listening to this podcast is they can make a list of the things they like to eat. And that changes for everyone. We all have different preferences. And you can start practicing buying local food. It's amazing that our farmer's markets are still open. We can support all these farmers that are working hard on stewarding our soil and growing local varieties. And that's a great way to start making a list of what you like to grow. Uh, that's a great way to start a list of what you like to eat and what season it's available in. So... Um, I designed my food forest so that I would start early with the honeyberries and the strawberries and my latest food that I harvest would be the persimmons and the quinces. And then I have fruit trees like um, the Cy pear and the Hudson's golden gem apple that are put there for winter storage so that I can be harvesting a Cy pear in November and be eating it in March. So overall, that's what I encourage people to look to think about is like, what is it that you really like to eat? And when I started growing all my, you know, growing most of my own food year round and um, putting it up, I put up a lot of applesauce and I just don't eat that much applesauce. So you want to also look at like, what are the various value added things that you buy that you could make at home and how do you adapt what you're growing for that? So for me, the apples turn into applesauce, apple butter, um, hard cider. I do five gallons of hard cider. I do apple cider vinegar from the hard cider. I do um, something called apple stroop, which is cooked down so that the apples become the apple cider becomes as thick as molasses, so it's a sweetener. I do dried apples, 
Um, I coat apples in sugar and some cinnamon and put it in the freezer for making apple pie in the winter. So I've so you can see there's all these different yields that you can get from the apple tree, and I've spaced it out into what I need to put put me through the winter and how I can um, incorporate the apples in my diet and also delight my friends and neighbors by being able to share things that I've made from the garden. When we initially um, designed our food forest, because we were putting in young trees, we wanted to design for built-in soil fertility. And the way that we did this was by having an intentional plant community designed each, around each tree that provided the primary things that that tree was going to need. So first, each guild got a nitrogen fixer. And some of the nitrogen fixers that I've used in my food forest include false, uh, the false indigo, Baptisia, um, Siberian pea shrub, autumn olive, gumi, and lupin. The next category of plant that I included in my guild is something that's known as a dynamic accumulator or a mulch plant. It's a plant that has fleshy stalks and big leaves and often um, a deep and diverse root system. So it helps open up the passageways in the soil for better air and water flow. Um, and the leaves and the aerial parts can be used as mulch to help build biomass on the soil. So some of the, tree, some of the species that I used for that include uh, I've got three different types of comfrey. I used sweet Sicily. I used Ella Campaign. And we also have um, some of the nitrogen fixers. We do chop and drop to help with that. Each fruit tree got a plant that attracts beneficial insects and a plant that's in bloom at the time when the fruit tree is flowering to help both attract pollinators as well as to attract beneficial insects to help with pest problems. And then I also had a ground cover with each of my fruit trees so that it would cover the ground and prevent any evaporation of water off the soil to hold in the moisture and to be able to um, prevent compaction when rain falls onto the soil. We also inoculated the entire food forest area with Kingstropharia mushrooms, which is a beautiful purple mushroom that produces mushrooms in, edible mushrooms in the spring and fall. And so that's a delight to be able to find when I go out into the food forest at this time of year. Wow. So it sounds like there's a ton of different layers that not just layers of the food forest you're talking about, but also layers of understanding and thought and analysis that goes into designing something like this. How could someone learn all of the intimate knowledge that you have of food forest, Marisha? Well, I've just launched a new online food forest course through Oregon State University. The first section is a self-paced course. So that means that you can do it on your own at your own pace. And that section focuses on the context of food forests, on knowing what a food forest is, how can you build your soil in your food forest, how can you advance succession in your food forest. We talk about different types of um, relationships between plants for maximizing diversity in your food forest and maximizing the health of your plants. Um, we also go into yields of the food forest as well as propagation. And then in the fall, we're going to be launching the practicum for the food forest course, which is instructor-led. So I'll be working with all the students on a design site of their choice as they design their own food forest. Wow, that's really great. And actually, that was a leading question because I've helped you make this 
And uh, I did all of the uh, video, all the filming and editing, and I think it's just really a spectacular presentation of your knowledge, Marisha, because I've been working with you for like over 10 years, and I consider you a real resource, and I'm continually impressed by your encyclopedic plant knowledge and your ability to um, express it in a really digestible form. So that's my little, that's my little plug. So, um, thank you. You're welcome. Can, so, I, can I add one other thing? Yeah, um, sure. I just want to say that like people sometimes get lost in all the different, um, names that I can spout out of plants. Um, and I know so many plants and, um, like, you know, you know, like you just mentioned, but if there's anyone out there that felt overwhelmed by the different plants that I've mentioned, um, there's a principle in permaculture that says design from patterns to details. And so that's one of the things that we really um, designed for when we were working with the food forest course, right, Andrew? Mm-hmm. We designed for, so people could figure out the patterns of where they lived and what different plants might fit into what they want. And we provided a lot of, we, pr- we provided some templates and worksheets and different things that they could use so that they could go from patterns to details so that no matter where these students were from, they'd be able to work with the curriculum to find plants and different strategies that fit for where they live. Nice. So you've mentioned a lot of these, you know, different processing. You talked about how you make cider and all these different types of products you make. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what are some of the different appropriate technologies that someone, when they're looking at urban food security, that they also might look at, right? Like, like for, for instance, the first thing that came to my mind, I was like, wow, well, if someone really wants to enhance their urban food security right now, then maybe they would construct a solar food dehydrator you know, to get, yeah, to collect I, the surplus figs. Like what, what are some of the other technologies uh, that someone could be building in their own yard, their own home with some of the scraps they have available that their neighbors have available with simple tools uh, to also help to enhance their food security? Yeah, I think it's always important when you're listening to something about permaculture to keep in mind where that person is from. So we're coming at you from Oregon, Western Oregon. We have a maritime climate. Um, It gets hot in the summer. Um, But come August, we start to have humidity in the air. And while a solar dehydrator could work better in some other places, I've found at my house that the solar dehydrator doesn't really work past um, the beginning of August. Because at that time, it takes about... It can take two days to be able to dry our fruit. And if you leave it outside overnight, it gets rehydrated with our humid evenings. So you could have a solar dehydrator that you bring in at night, where you bring in your trays at night. Um, You could also have a solar dehydrator where you had an electric assist in the evening. So um, that's just something to consider about where we live, where a solar dehydrator works better for other people in some other places. You know, there's also all sorts of different um, food storage technologies using the ground. Um, Many people um, consider a root cellar. And here in our climate, or at least as we've looked at it for our home in Portland, um, having food in the ground in the wintertime, it's too moist when we get so much rain. Um, So we actually 
um, have just limited our need for refrigeration. And we don't have a refrigerator at home. We have a small cooler um, and I rotate ice through a freezer and that um, into the cooler and that help, that provides for the minimal amount of refrigeration that I need, which is mostly for cream in my morning beverage. So other um, technologies, well, one of the coolest ones that we have is a biodigester where we can feed it um, food scraps and manure and it lets out um, methane gas that we can use to fire a cook stove. Now, the microbes that live within the biodigester prefer temperatures above 67 degrees, so it's a tricky thing for a temperate climate. However, it is really nice that we get this effluent that comes off of it, this liquid fertilizer that's the perfect ratios of NPK. We've had it tested. And um, that liquid fertilizer then goes to all the fruit trees, five-gallon bucket once a week where they get their water that they need, and it's value added with the nutrients from the biodigester. Uh-oh. Well, I've got I've got one that I'm working on as uh, this this summer. One of my goals here is to harvest a whole other nutrient stream, and that's the waste that moves through the human body. So, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, some of your experience with humanure composting and your systems there? Sure. Yeah, we have a humanure compost. Um, we've used the design from the folks at Omric, where they, uh, if you look that up online, they've posted a design that uses 55 gallon drums. It's a similar, comp- it's a similar system as we saw at Brad Lancaster's place in Arizona. Um, we like the 55 gallon drums because they're um, self, they're contained, so there's no dumping buckets in a open. Um, in a wire bin or anything. These are contained within plastic, which is important if you get a lot of rain. And yeah, we've, uh, we were on a system where every two years we'd cycle through four barrels and we use our humanure compost on our fruit trees and our berry bushes um, and our perennials, but we never would use something like that in the annual vegetable garden. That's for things that have a more woody um, tissue. Yeah. So and I, yeah, and then you um you separate out your urine from the humanor system. Mhm. Yeah, we have a urine diverter and the urine right now I'm using the urine diluting it 10 to 1 to help um fertilize the garlic crop. Right now in the springtime it's the time where our garlic bul- garlic bulbs start to um increase in size and so they really need that um, nitrogen boost at this time. If anyone's growing garlic and they don't have urine that they want to use for whatever reason, since we all have urine every day, but if you don't want to do that, you want to do something else, you can use blood meal or you can use kelp, um, seaweed. Now, I thought I remember, I don't know if this was you or um, or Connie Van Dyke talking about how the amount of urine that the average family produces is actually like way more nitrogen than the average home can even can even take up. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Or yeah. maybe I just heard that from Connie too. I couldn't cite a source or anything on that. Yeah. But I know that there's we have a lot of we're all full of piss. Yeah. We're full of piss. I mean so that's another it's like people are like, oh but I don't have a compost going. I don't have my fertility system going. Oh worm bin. Well you know what? Probably uh, you know, sometime in the next hour or so, you're going to go and deposit uh, nitrogen-rich fertility. And so you're saying you actually mix your urine 10 to 1 with water and then use it directly as a fertilizer. 
Yeah, that's what you want to do. So for some, so for someone that's a little more, I'm just, I'm thinking of the person right now who maybe is having a little bit of an oh shit moment, going, I gotta get, you know, they're they're suddenly awakening to the fact that their food is very distant. And actually, I want to tell a little a little side note here. Um, I am working. Uh, you know, I spent spent a good amount of time in India in the last uh, couple years, and I'm working uh, with a woman, um, to do some translation on the, uh, video on some of the videos I'm producing for my India trip. And she's a permaculture person that I met there and I visited her place. I actually filmed her place and it's in Chennai and she's got a beautiful rooftop, intensive rooftop vegetable garden and lots of really nice trees in the property. It's a very small plot. It's very dense food production and, uh, water harvesting. And she said right now, that the, the lockdown that we're under here in Oregon is actually loose. Like we can go to the grocery store, we can travel. It's, you know, you can kind of get to your essentials. She said where she is, they don't have a car. They only use public transport. Well, public transport shut down. They cannot get to a vegetable market. And that they, they have food, but they don't have fresh vegetables now. I mean, they have what they're growing on their rooftop and... Uh, and that's pretty much it. So she was in the process of just really trying to rapidly ramp up their vegetable production on the small area that they have. Um, but a lot of people are going to be in, you know, situations like that where they really can't get out and, or situations where they're just awakening to the fact that they really want to do a very rapid transformation of their yard to food production. And so I think that just highlighting the fact that we are releasing high value fertilizer multiple times a day you know this is this is one of your little key leverage points here that not everybody's tuned into that you yeah, can turn true. into food production really quickly yeah it's true and you know another another key um resource that everyone has not as available as rp is um our gray water you know, and so if we're using um, phosphorus-based detergents in our gray water, then our water, gray water is the water that we use for washing dishes or for um, showering, then we can have that water be reused in the garden once it's value added. And so what we've done before, we had the effluent from the biodigester. I used to bucket out all my shower water. So that all that stuff that would come off my body when I'd shower would be an asset for growing more food on our lot. But yeah. it is important to note um, just on the humanure um, human subject that you do want to age your humanure for two years. So that's not an immediate sort of solution. But there's also liquid fertilizers that people can get if you can get stuff. But pee is there for all of us well i think it's best practices to age your humanure for two years but i've certainly seen systems where people are are monitoring the temperature of their piles they're having very like extreme thermophilic composting and that they are turning their manure over much quicker than two years yeah it's true but since i don't know who else listening to us i know i make sure that everyone's safe out there because there is a reason why we have our public uh, or why we have our um, city, our city, uh, what's that called? Our municipal waste system. Yeah. 
there's yeah. a lot of um, fecal diseases. I mean, including including the coronavirus, you know, that um, is also, fe- you know, can be um, transferred fecally. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, I was I was actually just I just did a webinar with a um, naturopathic doctor friend of mine this morning, and she was saying how one really important one important practice to do is to just make sure you close your toilet lid, which I hadn't really thought about. Hmm. Yeah. That's a good practice to do anyway. I know. I think so. I don't. I don't. <laughs> I think it's bad energetically when your toilet yeah. lids up. I don't know. Okay, so here's another um, thing. But you know, just just like while we're yeah, go ahead. Um, I don't really like talking about humanure publicly. Yeah. Just no. because I'm not, I don't feel confident that I'm always, you know, accurate. And yeah. so I guess, I mean, it sounds like I was accurate enough, but just as a disclaimer there. Yeah. And, and, you know, I guess normally I wouldn't talk about humanure a whole lot either on this public broadcast I do because it's one of those things that's very touchy and if it's done incorrectly it can actually be a health risk and a safety hazard however I really do want to bring it up right now and I think it's really worth talking about it because here we are in this very new situation and so people need to realize that if they can get a safe system that properly composts their waste, that they actually have a whole nother sorts of fertility, especially given the fact that, that people's movement is limited and they maybe not, they can't just order a truckload of cow manure or also people have lost their jobs. Maybe they don't have money to pay for soil amendments and all that stuff. So I, I do, I, I am happy that we're talking about it. And also, yes, strong disclaimer is, well, you know, the humanor handbook Mm-hmm. By Joseph Jenkins. I one of his son Orion Jenkins was one of my permaculture students back in Arizona. Got to meet Joseph Jenkins in person. He wrote, you know, the Humanor Handbook, and it's it's very a very good book, very detailed. Um, let's move on to ways that people can support themselves on a small scale. I'm going to give one example of an idea that I had that I've now handed over to one of my friends in the neighborhood, and he's already actually had success with this, which is installing Instagardens for other people, mm-hmm. right? Getting some wood, maybe some rot-resistant cedar, or some variety for garden boxes, being able to eliminate the grasses quickly with some of the methods we talked about. He has a big pile of compost and leaves anyway, so being getting that, getting uh, starts, sourcing starts. He has a greenhouse. So he was growing. He had all these components on his own property. Uh, but also you can source these components from different places. And so he, I said, because he, he's having trouble with work. I said, hey, you could be basically, I was like, Bill, you know, you've got these garden boxes in your own yard. Take a picture of it. Put it on our local, um, our local, uh, uh, town Facebook group, Corvallis people, they call it. I was like, and start to publicize, you know, say, hey, come up with a cost that it would cost you to do this. And just, you can just go and pop garden beds in people's yards that maybe they're older, or maybe they don't have the health or the, or the time to do that. And he, and he actually already has had his first client in that. So this is like a, a small scale um, business opportunity. And, and I know you had a really successful um, uh, 
driveway nursery for many years here. What are some of the other quick business opportunities that people can actually, you know, ride this wave of food security to also give them some economic security? Yeah. Well, I still actually do have a thriving nursery business. It's just I decided this year that I didn't want to do annuals. And I'm really thankful for it um, because it allows someone who doesn't have reliable income like I have through teaching with you at Oregon State um, to be able to make that income off the annual vegetables instead of me taking away, you know, taking business away from someone who really needs it. And um, it was cool to hear about your friend. Um, actually, we I have a good friend who took one of my permaculture classes at Tryon Life Farm who's been installing garden beds. His business is PDX Farm, and he has three tiers where he'll install the garden for you is the first tier. The second tier is he'll install it and plant it. And then the third tier is he installs it, plants it, and will harvest for you. And so he actually came to me after I decided not to do the vegetable business this year, which I was doing um, a vegetable start CSA where my subscribers got a flat of vegetables once a month from April through September. And the flat provided exactly what they needed to plant and um, exactly uh, varieties that were known to thrive um, and provide a good, reliable food source and be beautiful in our climate. So my friend contacted me saying he was interested in doing a annual vegetable nursery. And so now I'm working on trying to transition my business over to him. And I'm just thinking I'm going to stick with the perennials, um, the culinary herbs, perennial vegetables, um, medicinal herbs, berry bushes, you know, and just perennial plants rather than the annuals. So those are two different, you know, within a nursery, there's multiple types of niches that you can carve out for yourself, whether it's annual vegetables or perennial plantings, or even, I mean, just focusing on perennial vegetables has been really good for me with the nursery. Um, I also have a small um, business, a small endeavor of making medicinal herbal products um, using the things in my garden. And I actually, one of my trips to the store right now, I don't have to go to the store very much, but I did have to go to get tincture bottles because I didn't want to sit on all these medicines without being able to share it with the community. And some of the medicines that I make that I think are most important at this time of uh, COVID is um, fire cider, which is a um, bronchial um, tonic that's made from apple cider vinegar and um, and onions and garlic and rose hips and ginger and horseradish and hot peppers. And I grow all those things. I also have elderberry syrup and elderberry tincture. Um, I have a number of different types of Nervine herbal products to help you to help calm the anxiety. And then I have a couple other varieties of things that help people sleep. Um, so herbal products is another line. Um, you could do uh, cut flowers, um, value added, other value-added products um, could do. You could do different um, prepackaged, or not prepack. You could do other um, value-added products from your um, produce in your yard. You know, maybe that's a small cidery. It could be a meadery. Um, it could be a small winery. Yeah, you know, it's interesting what you mentioned about the virus, and and uh, I I have a couple different friends of mine who um, live around here who are growing, they're planting different plants from seed that they have, uh, specifically medicine that had been used, um, uh, around the SARS virus and other really intense respiratory viruses. My one friend, and this is, this is, he told me, I, I don't you, you probably tell me a lot about this plant, but, um, he said, well, it's pretty invasive, but woad, right? Oh, woad. He's huh? growing woad 
And apparently, uh, woad has really intense medicinal respiratory effects. Uh, another friend of mine who's a Chinese medicine doctor, he's got a big uh, greenhouse. What was he saying? He, he was mentioning some some other Chinese herbs that he had seed for. So a lot of people that are that are already medicinal plant growers are shifting their production to plants that you know, really intensively support respiratory health. Yeah. Could possibly, yeah. There's so many good herbs that support respiratory health. And while we're talking about medicines to use um, in this situation, I think it's important to recognize that we're not talking about anything that cures the virus. There's no cures for the virus. There's no studies that have been done on medicinal herbs that um, help provide support for the virus. But what there is is anecdotal information based on past uses of people who practice using these plants over time. And we can look at some things that were used during the flu epidemic in the 1920s. Um, Lemon balm is a common weed where we live, and it's also antiviral. It probably has effects against these flus. So what we're talking about here as we name off these medicinal herbs that can be good allies in this time are things that help alleviate the symptoms, that help you feel better. Um, thyme is another really great one to use. Um, a lot of my herbalist friends have been talking about just doing um, facial steams using these aromatic herbs like thyme, which is a great respiratory tonic, or other um, aromatic plants to help open up your mucosa. Yeah, you know, and it's not just medicinal herbs specifically for the virus, but I'll tell you a little story here. Is that a couple days ago, I was moving some fencing around and stuff, and I really smashed my finger. And um, it's got real swollen and hurt quite a bit. And I had a kind of a deep puncture. And I was like, you know, in another circumstance, I I, I might be tempted to go to urgent care and have it x-rayed. And I was like, you know, I don't really want to go to urgent care and have my finger x-rayed. I kind of want to stay far away from um, any any place like that right now. So I went to my friend who's a, a... Chinese medicine doctor and herbalist. Um, and at a safe distance, I showed him my swollen hand here. And this was yesterday. And he said, Hey, he's like, let's pick some yarrow. And he said, Hey, do you have any comfrey? He said, go ahead. And, you know, we talked a little bit about yarrow, Achillea, right? Achilles, the Achilles heel. This is the medicine that, you know, you use on, on, uh, you know, tendons and then he, uh, comfrey, also known as knit bone. And I went and I harvested these. I had a bunch of comfrey and he had some some yarrow that was already up. And I made a paste and I made a poultice and I had this wrapped around my uh, inflamed finger all night. And, you know, it, it, it's a lot better today, actually, I've got to say. So it's not just medicines directly related to the virus, but it's medicines for things that we might want to try to handle on our own instead of going to a doctor for. Yeah, for I've, done a, contact, I've, yeah. I've done a workshop on how to create your own herbal first aid kit that goes through like, what are the key things that we would want in an herbal first aid kit? And what are the herbs that we could choose to grow in our landscape that would support those outcomes? And yarrow is actually my top, like, they call it the, de- you know, your desert island herb. Like if you were stuck on an island, what are the plants you'd want. And yarrow is certainly one of them. I mean, that one's good for decreasing cold, uh, decreasing fevers for um, colds and flu, but it's, its ability to um, stop bleeding is one of its 
most well-known and um, valuable qualities. Mm -hmm. I always plant yarrow in the landscape wherever I can easily describe to someone where they could find it in case someone cuts himself. And I once cut the tip off my finger and um, at yarrow right away, chewed it and um, attached it and stuck the yarrow onto my wound. And it stopped that bleeding really fast. Wow. Well, you know, I actually, the, the time that I usually use yarrow is when I have some kind of sinus or throat infection coming on and I will just steep fresh yarrow leaves in hot water and, and gargle with it. And that's yeah. really the only time that I've used yarrow, but every, I, I've also heard it referred to as the mother of all herbs and it's literally a weed. I mean, it literally will come up. It comes up all over the place. This is a really common plant. You don't even have to cultivate it if you can just identify it. And if you walk around, if you have untended ground or, you know, you'll find it. They use it in eco lawn mixes. I see, you know, places like low growing variety that can be mowed. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and this is, you know, this is, this is a health, this is urban health security. Yeah. Not just food. Yeah. I mean, in some communities still have people that can set bones, that have that knowledge. You know, here in the United States, we don't have, I've never met an American bone setter, you know, but mm. I know an, I know a Belizean bone setter. Mm. So, and it's really, really interesting um, in these other communities to be able to see what skills they have as hope for what skills we can gain again. Yeah. Yeah. I like to say just about yarrow, um, Aside from all of its amazing um, medicinal qualities, it also is really great for attracting beneficial insects. For um, it's great as mulch on the um, on the landscape. It's a wonderful ground cover, and it's one of those plants that we could just go on and on about all the ecological functions that it brings to the landscape. While it's also like our top first aid herb. Yeah, and so that's that's an amazing thing. I'd love you to talk about just a little bit. Is you're not just increasing food security when you are planting food and medicine plants and multi-storied gardens with orchards and understory perennials, but you're also actually increasing habitat and biodiversity. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how, how that has so many different benefits, uh, even for our own agricultural systems? Well, I like to think of us all as an interconnected web. And when you look cultures. There's many cultures around the world that actually design their food forests to incorporate in wild animals by recognizing the ecological functions that plants and animals provide for the stability of their landscapes. So they might have um, some food that's some um, some. It might be that there are some species that are distributed by animals. You know where animals take a fruit and they eat it, and then they go and deposit the seed somewhere else. In that process, they're pooping and they're peeing, and so they're also adding soil fertility into the landscape. I mean, some of these statistics we've seen about um, like 70% of the insect population is depleted right now. I mean, just think about all those tiny little insects and how much biomass they contribute when they die as that enhances the soil fertility in our landscape. I think of, um, yeah, all these plants are connected. So when we look at the issues that we're seeing in Africa right now with the um, plagues of locusts, mm -hmm. that's all been um, related to a depletion of soil fertility. And so how do we build soil fertility? We build it by having these animal relationships 
by having biomass cover the soil, by shading the soil, by having um, roots that are holding the soil together to enhance air and water pockets so that water is able to absorb into the soil rather than causing erosion where you lose soil. Uh, And the soil microbes are able to breathe and use that organic material that comes from the depositions of the trees and the other species to be able to enhance the fertility over time. How are the locusts caused by? I haven't I haven't read into that. Oh, you got to check out uh, Ramis Kent's stuff. Mm-hmm. He, he's got. Um, I've been kind of following his stuff. He wrote a an article about thrombiosis. So I don't know. It's a really big word. I hadn't heard that word before. Um, just about how these plagues of insects um, come in in a damaged ecosystem. That mm-hmm. by having a damaged ecosystem, the um, we see a lot more pests when our ecosystems aren't in balance. Hmm. And so he goes through a whole article, you know, a whole discussion about how the locusts in Africa is related to the collapse of the um, soil. In okay. The content, you know, I've done yeah. two, two interviews with Ramis. The first, uh, the first episode I ever did of earth repair radios with Ramis and he's a, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So he's a great guy. And let's, Let's link to that article in the show notes yeah, as Earth well. Repair a Unified Theory is Earth another repair, one. We unified. talked about the loss of ecological functions and how it's related to climate change, mm-hmm. the loss of biodiversity, and how um, the, you know, if we think about like there's the Gaia hypothesis, right? James Lovelock, that the Earth is an interconnected being where all of these species are working together for our health. Um, so as we're losing um, species and biodiversity is depleted, there's all these other things that are becoming unstable, which is, you know, our soil, our water, um, future, you know, the water cycle. You know, I've got to say that even on a small scale, I mean, I'm on a third of an acre. It's like a s- suburban scale development here in the town that I live in, in my neighborhood. And I have a 10-year-old permaculture site here. And I mean, right now in spring, I have tons of flowers. I mean, you've been to my place a lot. It's like right now it's it's an explosion of blooms, not just the pears and the cherries. The cherries are in their full majesty right now, but also native plants that I've put in here. The Oregon grape is now waning but i mean i had these exceptional oregon grape blooms right now i have the um the flowering red currant blooming as well um and then i just walked through i took a bike ride through some of the surrounding parks and i don't know if the mowing has decreased at all because of the virus or what but these parks that are normally have these grassy lawns i went through are beautiful carpets of wildflowers right now and it's gotten warm enough. The pollinators are out. And just in my small little third of an acre here where my house is, I mean, the pollinators are going nuts right now. There are so many pollinators and the bumblebees are out and all these small. And I'm looking out at these. I also have uh, elderberries blooming right now. My red elderberries in full bloom. And I mean, it's it's kind of mind-blowing how... Even a small area, when you bring in hyper biodiversity and you bring in native plants as well as exotic species and you have these really robust um, 
mosaic of flowering plants, it's amazing how much habitat you create, in, even in a small space. And I see that yeah. at your place is, is off the hook, you know. Um, I was amazed when, when my friend came to visit who lives on Marrowstone Island on a rural property on an island in the Puget Sound, and she commented about how many birds I had, I knew that I, I must have done well. You know, to have someone coming from a rural property near the water to say they were impressed with how many birds. So that's bringing me a lot of joy. And I think that we humans just need to move over and make sure that we're making enough space for other creatures because we're all interconnected and we we need all of these other species to help stabilize our bioregion. Yeah, you know, some other things I was thinking about with the virus and the clearing of the air, mm-hmm. right? And then also, I know that there was some studies done in Belgium on the, the seismic activity and how the seismic vibrations of human civilization, that they were measuring this huge decrease, right? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about, so I, I have beehives and I split, I have a really strong colony and I split that colony in order to stop them from swarming. And so... I took a bunch of frames where they were going to make a new queen. I put them in a new box. And so they're making a new queen. And that queen, she's going to have to fly out. And she's going to have to go to what they call a drone congregation zone, where all the male drones from different colonies around here are kind of just hanging out, waiting for a queen to show show up so they could have their marriage flight. They could fertilize the queen. And then she'd be able to lay eggs for the rest of her lifetime. And I was thinking about like like this whole concept of this drone congregation area where somehow all the beehives in my neighborhood, they know where the queen goes to get fertilized. Like like there's mm-hmm. there's these invisible structures and energies or whatever where the bees know where the queen goes and where they hang out and it's like way it's like a hundred feet up in the air 50 feet i don't know it's high up in the air right and so i was like wow i kind of felt that because the lessening of human activity the lessening of noise of air pollution of human vibrations and it made me think i wonder if there is a higher chance of success of my of my unfertile queen taking her marriage flight from the hive, locating the drone congregation area and being fertilized and then flying back successfully to the hive. You know, there's this whole series of events that needs to happen for her to to be be able to fertilize, um, lay fertile eggs for the rest of her life. And I was wondering if, you know, if the coronavirus would actually help that because humanity has gotten quieter. Yeah, I think you have a point there. And I think I need to clean out my beehive and put some lemongrass oil in it and see if I can catch a swarm this year. Because I feel I think that humanity has um, disrupted a lot of the patterns of other wildlife species. And what some, you know, we have increased extinction of different species and um, disruptive patterns in general. And the bees are We've been hearing about the bees for years and how they have been on the decline. So it'll be really interesting to see 
how beekeepers fare this year. And I know that um, there's the organization Portland Urban Beekeepers, which keeps tries to do a survey every year to keep track of the success of our local beekeepers. Um, so be interesting to see. Here in Portland, I, I think we've had more people wanting to keep bees than we have people planting flowers. So I think it's important to remind everyone out there that, you know, just by planting flowers for bees, you're a beekeeper. All the all the bees, the bees need all of us to plant flowers for them. We can't just, you're not just a beekeeper if you have domesticated bees in your yard. You're a beekeeper by providing habitat and water for those bees. Yeah, and I've got to say that aside from virus and pollution and all that stuff, it's just been a really, really good weather for the bees. It's been, there's just been really sunny, nice when we have our like Northern California spring, the bees just love it because they're flying every day. Because sometimes, you, as you know, we can get socked in. Everything can be blooming and we can be socked in with storms and the bees don't fly. And it can be very, springs, springtime can be very difficult for honeybees uh, in this climate. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that's something that I want to mention on this podcast too is for anyone that's listening that might be new to gardening, it's important to acknowledge that the spring and the fall, which I call the shoulder season, shoulder seasons, have a big fluctuation of temperature between our daytime highs and our nighttime lows. And one of the most important things if you're starting a garden, especially one with annuals, is being aware of those temperature thresholds so that you're putting in things once you've reached the temperature threshold for those plants. So it's been beautiful here, you know, 70 degree days. But if you're up at 6 a.m., it's really cold out right now. And the bees are probably waiting till 11 a.m. And then they start doing their thing. And it's just it's on right now. It's going to be those pears and apples are getting pollinated. Yeah. And and when you're paying attention to plants and nature uh, and it's springtime, it's it's hard to go outside and be depressed. You know, it's really difficult. Like I can, I get on the internet and I'm like, oh my God, what's happening? It's all so overwhelming. It's crazy. People are dying. And, you know, you start to like, you can get really, um, you can get really disturbed by it all. And like, I go outside and when I open to my senses, um, I feel a lot of beauty and warmth. Yeah. So I, I think I, it's it's a tonic. It's a tonic for the intensity of the situation we're in. Yeah. When I go out to the garden, there's always good news. You know, yeah. maybe the good news is that I have eggs in my chicken coop or that um, I think the bleeding heart opened today, you know, or that the tulips are glistening in the sun or that that sweet song sparrow is sitting on the trellis singing her song. You know, it's you turn on the computer and you don't really know what you're going to get. So yeah. um, it's reliable out there in a permaculture landscape yeah. that you have beauty. Well, sometimes there's bad news in the garden too. It's, I mean, sometimes there's bad news. Yeah. But the thing about biodiversity is if you have enough biodiversity, usually the bad news is, uh, you know, is, um, is buffered by some good, buffered some of the good, by all the good stuff. And, and the other thing is, is that I find, um, often my bad news might come more from like the annuals or the short lived cultivated things. But when you have more established plants that are producing exponential yield over time, um, they're more resilient, you know, in the food forest course, we talk about, um, 
three different types of species. You got the ruderal species that come in in the early stages of succession and they spread a lot of seed and they um, tend to be really weedy. And then we've got the competitor species that try to like hunker down and create a lot of biomass like comfrey. But then you've got the stress tolerators, which are in for the long haul. And, you know, that's we want to have a lot of those in our communities so that we know that we've got food production and medicine for the long haul. Yeah, and you know, I thought about, I mean, I've, I've been thinking about disaster preparedness for a long time, and uh, I thought about that when I planted a whole hedgerow of Jerusalem artichokes, mm-hmm. right? And it's a tuber, and I don't particularly, I'm not particularly fond of eating them. Um, however, they're there, and I know that whatever happens, I actually have in the ground this fairly large amount of this edible tuber, and so, you know, you can plant things that I, I consider them ornamental at the, for where they're planted in my landscape. And I use them as a screen from the sidewalk in the summertime. There's a beautiful late blooming sunflower. It blooms in like October. I mean, it's, it's really an amazing plant. However, it's also a food source that's been increasing in the ground as a tuber year after year. Now, you've mentioned some others like, you know, parsnip. I assume you can just leave those in the ground. You just have a food source increasing. Do you, do you have any... Um, any parting thoughts here about some other, some other famine foods, you know, long-term food security foods that people could put in the ground and know that they have a increasing resource over time? Yeah, first I want to preface that with not you might not be eating your Jerusalem artichokes, but your bees are visiting that every year and they're so happy for those late blooms. And then when the Jerusalem artichoke has those big stalks that come up, if you just cut those down and don't cut them too small, I bet you have mason bees nesting in there or that those stalks, if they're allowed to stay long and left as mulch on your landscape, I bet that that's all sorts of habitat for the native bees. Because that's what they're looking for. So, you know, not only do you have your long-term, like, um, disaster food, but you're providing annual food and habitat for your for the bee populations, not just the cultivated honeybee, but also the native bees. So, um, yeah, parsnip's certainly my disaster food. I mean, I think one strategy that I have for, like, disaster foods is to let your vegetables self-seed. You know, where I've got kale and lettuce and all sorts of things coming up every year. I actually, when I decided I wasn't going to do the vegetable starts nursery this year, I thought maybe I just shouldn't plant any starts this year. Let's just see if we could spend a whole year just eating off all the things that just naturalized in the landscape. Hmm. That would be pretty neat. Um, Horseradish is something that's really hard to get rid of. I mean, we wouldn't eat a lot of a lot of the root, but we the leaves are nutritious, and you could those. Yeah. you know, any of the perennial vegetables, you know, lovage, sorrel, um, good King Henry. Um, think about these. Oh, and gumi. Like, man, there are a ton of gumi berries last year. Nitrogen fixing. It can grow in the shade, you know. And then um, we steam juice the gumi and put it in the freezer for what we couldn't drink. And it is so full of nutrients. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, an apple tree. You know, the simplicity of having some of these really standard, um, reliable varieties, you know, where we've got like the Liberty apple or the Akane apple, it'll produce every single year, you know, or um, Italian prune plums are like that, you know, raspberries, you know, they can become weedy, it's hard to get rid of them. But you know, here in uh, Western Oregon, we also have to make sure that we don't have them too thick because of the spotted wing drosophila. You know, we've got 
we've got blackberries going crazy everywhere, you know, wherever they can be weedy. And blackberry is also a wonderful medicine and a good forage for the honeybee. And it's good for building biomass. If you ever look under a rat, a blackberry patch to see what the soil's like, it's always like rich and black and well aerated. Um, and then, you know, you can just rift off that if you don't want the thorny blackberries, but you want something for the long haul, plant a triple crown thornless or plant a Chester thornless ras the, uh, blackberry, or you could plant a thornless loganberry. You know, in my yard, we've got, we go from boysenberry to loganberry to marionberry to triple crown to Chester, you know, and so then we have diversity within that. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's so, so much. Yeah. A lot, if we look at these common weeds, a lot of our vegetables came from being weeds. One of the one of the, my favorite ones that is naturalized in my landscape recently is uh, Gailon, which is a uh, um, uh, self-seeding um, uh, sprouting broccoli from hmm. uh, Asia, but it has bigger heads than the sprouting broccolis that we know. And it's just self-seeded, and it has white flowers. It doesn't cross-pollinate with the other broccolis, and it just comes back, and they're big plants. Oh, wow. I got to get some of those from you. Yeah. Dang, now we can't do, uh, I can't get any starts from you. We can't do plant exchange. Yeah. Because suddenly Portland and Corvallis are very far away from each other. Yeah. Yeah. I got some messages from some people that said, hey, now's a pretty good time to have been a seed saver. You know, and the thing is, is we're going to get out of this. And I hope we're all changed. You yeah. know, I hope that... We have more seed savers. We have more people that are using local medicine that know the skills of the, using the herbs for medicine. Herbs have been very effective for alleviating symptoms, and they've been, they're very effective for so many different, um, different ailments. And, you know, we all need to be enhancing our soil fertility, planning for biodiversity. It's just shocking to see um, reports about the loss of biodiversity and how um, other species are suffering because of consumption patterns. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's a crazy time, but it's also a time that's ripe for change in the good direction. So hopefully uh, some of these good waves can actually build through this disruption. That's my hope. That's my hope for the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, how else can people find out more about your work, Marisha, more about your different classes or ways that they can learn from you? And Well, my website's permaculturerising.com. You can find out all about me and Andrew on that website. Uh, that's where all my classes are posted. I have a Facebook page for my nursery, Marisha's Permaculture Plant Nursery. It's just got that simple name for the business. And I've got a YouTube channel that's under my name. Nice. And uh, I would really encourage people, if you're interested, to sign up for Marisha's Permaculture Food Forest course on demand. She's got a whole slew of action-packed videos just waiting for you to watch. We've got the sneak preview of a few of them on my YouTube channel, your YouTube channel. Sometimes we put something out on Instagram. My Instagram handle is uh, permaculturizing as well. And yeah, let's make let's make this year a year for enhancing ecological function, for building biodiversity, for enhancing our local food system. And by the end of the by the end of the year, let's say it was a good year for building community as well. As isolated yeah. as we may feel, all of these things 
generally help us feel more connected. Yeah. Great. All right. Thanks so much for taking the time, Marisha. I really appreciate talking to you as always. Thanks, Andy. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to Earth Repair Radio. I'm Andrew Millison, and you can find more episodes on earthrepairradio.com.